Well, I think that you guys are in a break from a series in Genesis right now, right? So have you gone through Genesis chapter 11 with Pastor Tim at this point? So when you were in Genesis, though, did he teach? Has he gotten to Genesis 11 yet? He has. Okay. So this is going to be like maybe part two or 2.0 or I I don't know what. I don't want to say 2.0 because that sounds arrogant or something. But uh, we're doing it again. And I'd shared with Tim that I was going to be teaching on the Tower of Babel. We had done so at our church at Revive AV with a specific emphasis that I think you're going to see as I begin to teach through this section. And so uh, my hope and prayer is, is that we would see that God's word is so multifaceted and there's so much depth to it that we can continue to go back to his word again and again and hear it afresh and anew and that it is going to impact our hearts and our minds as we allow it to in a fresh way every single time. So I'm excited to be here in Genesis chapter 11 with you guys. And one of the things that I wanted to share with you to kind of give you some context on where the author of Genesis is at here in the book of Genesis is a little story about how my wife and I oftentimes parent our children. All right, one of the things that we oftentimes find with our kids is, is that we're seeking to explain ourselves to our children. Now, you can't always do that. Sometimes your kids just, you know, it's in the moment and they've got to trust what I'm saying is the right thing and you need to do it, right? But hopefully most parents also recognize that when a kid begins to understand why something is good and why something is, is bad, they begin to, to love the reasons that things are good and love the reasons that things are bad, right? Is It's like if, if you say reaching over the stove to grab a cookie is just bad and there's no reason like, man, sometimes the stove is on and you could burn yourself, then it just seems like indiscriminate prohibition to a kid a lot of times like man they just want to steal our fun that's what they're out to do you know but if you get the opportunity as a parent to explain why that's a good opportunity a consistent answer of because I am your dad isn't the best form of parenting now sometimes that comes out of my mouth because you're in the heat of the moment you're going through your day, and it's just, man, it is not time for a teachable moment right now. You get your shoes on, we're going, right? But when there is that opportunity for the teachable moment, and to explain why, and to give your children long-lasting perspective, and context, and wisdom, man, it's a good thing to do. And we see God modeling that form of parenthood all throughout Scripture. Where God isn't always 100% forthright with his kids on why he is doing something. Sometimes there is mystery and God is not fully revealing the mystery yet to his kids in scripture. Or sometimes to us even till this day. I mean, let's be honest. There is some mystery about who God is. His character, his preeminence, his eternal existence. The fact that there is no beginning and no end. The fact that he is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's mystery in this stuff, right? 
The fact that he's written the end from the beginning, yet he still holds mankind responsible for their actions. There's mystery there. And as his kids, we have to be kind of comfortable in the tension of the mystery sometimes. Okay, He's the creator of the universe. He's our dad. And in his supreme wisdom, he's chosen not to reveal the full understanding of all of these things to us right now. But then other times in Scripture, we see that God's just completely forthright. There's a teachable moment or he wants to reveal something about his heart, his character, the context in which he finds his children in, in a specific area of Scripture. And he just comes out with it. And he goes, this is, this is why I'm doing this. And this is what I'm about. And this is what I stand for. And this is what I'm calling you to. And, and here's why. And Genesis is really one of those books. Genesis is one of those books where God is getting down on one knee, looking eye to eye at his children and saying, hey, I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what I'm about. And I want you to know who you are and what I'm calling you to do and to represent. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 11, he's already done a lot of that. He's come on the scene to the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses after they have fled slavery in Egypt. And he's gotten down on one knee here in the book of Genesis to tell them, I'm the creator of the universe. And I created this this whole universe with great intention and purpose. And I created mankind in my own image to be a reflection of my glory and my character, my intelligence, and my morality. And I have a purpose for marriage. I have a purpose for mankind as man and woman. And and I have a purpose for you to go out into this world and to be my agents of multiplication, multiplying and filling the earth and, and subduing it, making this earth your home, where you can represent me, where you can reflect my glory and all of my character. And as things begin to unravel in the book of Genesis, he continues to tell his children more about the context in which they live. He helps them understand why the world's broken, why people don't always make the right decisions, why there's depression and heartache and pain. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3. Hey, here's mankind as God's representatives in a close relationship with their father and creator. And God gives gives them an opportunity. Hey, you can... You can be in relationship with me. You can be under my teaching and my tutelage as my representatives. But I'm also going to give you an option. And and I'm going to place this tree in the middle of the garden. This tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Which represents mankind choosing their own way. Choosing to be their own teachers. Their own guides. Choosing to philosophize instead of come under the tutelage of the creator of the universe. And he says, it's not good to do that, but it's there. And so he gives them that option. And when they, when they make that choice, it's a choice to say, see later to God. Like, I, I'm going to decide to be my own God, my own agent of morality. 
I'm going to kind of philosophize and develop what I think is true, what I think is right. And as that happens in Genesis 3, you see this strain and this brokenness come on the face of this earth that gives a lot of context and understanding to God's kids there in the wilderness. Man, this brokenness, this pain, this slavery that that we experience, you know, some of that is because mankind has now created their own way and their own path. And there's this decay that exists when you're not in the will of the Creator. It's just this natural reality. Life and goodness and love exists in the Creator and His way and His will. And that which isn't a part of His way and His will is naturally going to experience decay. Because that which He authors and that which He blesses, man, He is the source of life. He is the the sustaining force in this world. And so this decay and this brokenness begins to come on the face of the earth and there's this sin and this disjointedness in relationships and you see that in the story of Cain and Abel where these brothers turn against each other and Cain has this, this envy and this jealousy and he kind of wants to write his own book on what it looks like to follow God. So he kind of represents this path of of following mankind's ways and mankind's hearts and their devices and their religious developments. But Abel was righteous, and he understood what it meant to to bring his whole self before God and, and to be a man who put God first in everything that he did. And from that story, you get this development of of two worlds existing on the face of the planet. You have the descendants of Cain, who are all of mankind in this world, who have kind of said, peace out to God. I'm going to determine my own path, my own way, follow my own dreams, philosophize and create my own morality, and just kind of say, hey, it's all relative. Whatever works for you. You know, if this makes me happy, then let me do it. If that makes you happy, then you can do it, you know. Cain represents that whole lineage, man's world, man's society, man's devices from eons past. And then you have Abel's lineage. And Abel's lineage represents those who decide, still in this broken world, to come under the teaching of the creator of the universe. To submit to him and give their lives to him and ensure that he's on the throne of their heart. And from Abel, you get this lineage uh, from Seth. And and from Seth, you have Noah. And then from Noah, you have Noah's sons, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so you see all the way working up to this story about the Tower of Babel, you see God getting on one knee and looking his kids in the eyes and saying, here's how things came to be the way they are now. You've got these two worlds, Uh, a world filled with people who have kind of said, "I'm, I'm eating from the tree, I'm going my own way, and another world that's that's like the city of God, God's people, saying you're the creator, you're the sustainer, your morality is true and right and good and represents the path for humanity in this world. And once everything goes down with with Noah and the flood and God's kind of hitting the reset button a little bit and and Ham, Shem, and Japheth come on the scene here in Genesis chapter 10. 
God's getting down on his knees, looking them in their eyes once again, and he's saying, I want you to understand the context in which you live. Okay, there's this guy, Ham, and he's pretty much like one of these descendants of Cain on a heart level. He hasn't been following me. And remember back when, when he was with his dad after the flood and they're hanging out and his dad had a moment of indiscretion where he gets drunk and he's kind of naked hanging out in his tent, cutting loose in a way that he shouldn't. Remember, Ham was the dude who pretty much just left his dad to open shame. Saw his dad drunk and naked and went out to everybody else and it was like, dude, check out what dad's doing. Can you believe dad? He's drunk, he's naked, my goodness, right? And it shows that God doesn't, doesn't like when we disrespect people and gossip about them and, and subject them to open shame. Proverbs actually says that, that it's in God's heart to cover a matter. That God's primary desire is to have a love that covers a multitude of sins. To look at our sin and say, I need to do something about this. I care about them. I don't want them just left to open shame. And so in the story leading up to the Tower of Babel, this is what the Israelites in the wilderness are learning about Ham. Is God's giving them some context and he's going, hey, guess who comes from Ham? The Canaanites in the land that I am sending you to. So there as they're in the wilderness hearing this Genesis story, most likely for the first time, God's helping them understand I'm sending you to this promised land and the Canaanites are there and man, they've been a messed up bunch from the very beginning. I sent Abraham there years before. They're going to learn that eventually. And as he worshipped me there and as he put me first, they still didn't care. I've given them chances to turn towards me. And now it's just time for judgment because they've wrecked that place. They've ravaged that place. They are killing innocent children in the name of worshiping their God. They've got temple prostitution going on, and I've asked them to stop, and they haven't stopped. So know that you are my agents of judgment now. And that from the very beginning, they've been low-down, dirty dudes. So don't think that you're just going in there and going to war against some really nice people that you don't know. So he's being a good dad. He's looking them eye to eye and helping them to understand the context in which they exist. And then it gets to the point where in Genesis chapter 10, to help them understand the context, he says that they, the Israelites in the wilderness, are descendants from Shem. Because in Genesis 10, the genealogy we're given for, for Shem eventually leads to Father Abraham. The, the man who becomes the father of the Jewish religion and the father of faith for us who follow Jesus Christ. And so they get to learn through this genealogy. Okay, okay, so Ham has these descendants and they're low down dirty dudes in the promised land kind of doing their own thing. But we're descendants of Shem, a man who is blessed by Noah and did desire to cover the matter of his father's sin in respect of his elder. And so they get to see, hey, from the very beginning, we've been God's kids. 
And he cares about us. And he's been faithful to us. And he didn't just leave us as orphans in Egypt. And now what he's doing here in the wilderness and eventually in Canaan, he has a plan for it. And we can trust him and we can follow him. And we can know that he's in covenant with us because he made a promise to the Shemites. We now call them Semites. That's where they get their name. Because God promised a descendant of Shem that he would be his God. And he would care for them and give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And so here they are in the wilderness hearing this Genesis story. And it's God's way of, as a father, to kind of give them context. To help them understand the world in which they exist. And to have confidence and courage to go and take the promised land. Because man, apparently God's been working towards this from the very beginning with his kids. And that's amazing to think, isn't it? Isn't it amazing to think of God as our parent? We see it in the way he parents his covenant people in the Old Testament. And then once you get to the New Testament, the language about him being our parent becomes hyper. Like it's not like it lessens or just continues that becomes the whole focus. Jesus begins to tell his followers to pray to God and say, Our Father who art in heaven. And then he begins to, to say all throughout the New Testament things like his spirit testifies to our spirit that we're his children. And then our spirit cries out to God, Abba, Father. This deep relational sort of cry. Like a little child saying, I'm so dependent on you. I'm so reliant on you. And I know you're good. I know you'll feed me. I know that you'll have compassion on me in my time of need. And that you will provide all of my needs according to your good will and pleasure. I mean, there are some incredible implications to the fact that he fathers his covenant people. That he's not just this kind of like omnipotent being in heaven with a long beard and curly white hair that looks down to throw lightning bolts every once in a while and perhaps be benevolent on occasion. But that he is intimately involved with the affairs of his kids. The implications are clear in scripture. That he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. That he disciplines those whom he loves to grow us into the image of his son. And that one day we will be with him in an eternal state of unity and love and intimacy forever. Because as a good father would, he has prepared a place for us to be with him forever. There are great implications here. But the question when we get to Genesis chapter 11 is why after all of this fatherly explaining of context, why babble? I mean, why, why this brief aside on God looking at the nations kind of conspiring together to hang out in one place and build this great tower to heaven and to, to try to please God and kind of look like the cool guy on the corner. Why this emphasis in the story on that? And as we ask that question, why, why the emphasis, why the brief aside on the story here in Babel, 
Let me just kind of front load you with this point. And this is what I would encourage you to write down in your notes if you're able. But I think what we're going to see here in the story of the Tower of Babel is that what God wants to show his kids is that he will take drastic measures to ensure that mankind fulfills their purpose. That he will take drastic measures to ensure that mankind fulfills their purpose. That he's kind of showing like, I've a way, and I've written the end from the beginning, and nothing can stay my hand, and when things aren't going the way that I've told mankind to make them go, they're not going to get the last word. I'm God. So don't fear. Don't fear man, but fear me. And, and ultimately recognize that if you're not about what I'm about, there's going to be trouble. And I'm going to do something about it. And, and ultimately, we begin to see God moving to take those drastic measures to move mankind in their right place and position. To begin to move mankind to fulfill the purpose that God had given them from the very beginning. So God's kind of wanting to show them like, man, I'm going to work to fulfill my purpose. So fall in line with me because it's going to be good for you. I don't want to be against you. So, so here's the question then. And this will be up on the board here for you to write down. And, and I'd encourage you to write it down because our two points this morning are going to focus in on this. The question is, what was mankind doing that resulted in God's intervention at Babel? Right? So if, if God will take drastic measures to ensure mankind fulfills their purpose, well then what was mankind doing to not fulfill their purpose? And the first answer to that that we can see in our text is that humanity had joined forces together toward a pride-filled aim. Towards a self-centered, sort of like self-glorifying purpose. See, their attempt was to connect with God based on human achievement. So they're building this tower into the heavens to, to kind of show themselves off like we're great and we're powerful. But the idea was, too, that the top of this would be like a, a conduit, like a lightning rod for communication and connection with the creator of the universe. So, so here we'll have this sweet city, we'll build this tower, and this tower will appease God, and he'll kind of rain down, and he'll be with us. We see these kind of ziggurats, these towers reaching to heaven, all throughout the world. And typically, they're these places to appease God or to worship him. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're trying to kind of be like, well, maybe I've got something in me that I could build to make God happy with me. And their idea of what could make God happy with them was building this ginormous tower. And, and there's so much pride in it. Like, look at who we are. Look at what, what we can do. I think if I put forth my best effort by the sweat of my brow, that God will be happy with me. So it says in verse 4 of chapter 11... They get together and they say, come let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. So there you can see this idea of, man, it's going to reach up into the outermost parts of our world and connect with God. And it says, and let us make a name for ourselves. So you can see this pride-filled aim, right? Like, we're going to be 
the, the talk of the neighborhood. And we're going to be big and bad and God's going to be pleased with us because of it. But there's vanity in this, right? In the same Old Testament, the same Hebrew Bible that we read this text in, God actually says that mankind's efforts compared to him and what he's able to do are like filthy rags before him. And so there's this perspective that God has where he's like, man, I've already told you guys, like, you're broken. And there's a disjointedness. And even on your best day, you're not reaching where I originally created you to be. But mankind, we have this hubris and this arrogance, and we compare ourselves to others. And it's like what we did yesterday, if we do 800 times better than that today, then it must be something good that God is proud of. And God goes, no, it doesn't even span like an eighth of the, the gap that exists between me and you. But we as human beings so often try to feel like, man, if we just baptized our personal dreams, then maybe when I fulfill my personal dreams, God will be happy with me. Or man, if I just pursue my passions to the very last day and really go after that, that at that point, I'll be acceptable to God. I'll be a good person. Maybe if I care for my family better than the guy next door, I'm a good person. God accepts me. Ryder, man, I'm going to be the best teacher. And these kids, I'm going to stay after school with extracurricular activities. Or I'm going to be the best EMT. You know, I'm going to work extra time and save extra lives. And while all those things are good, what we oftentimes do as human beings is we baptize them. We consecrate them. And we say, these are the things. When we do these things, I'll be a good person. Acceptable to God. Not like my neighbor or not like that guy on TV. And what we see in Scripture is God again and again and again going, that's good, man. Like, you should do those things. But in comparison to the true problem of humanity's broken relationship with me, it doesn't do anything. A good EMT is still a sinner. A good teacher is still a sinner. A, a good builder who could build into the heavens Man, he's still a sinner. It's wild when you think about it. Like, a lot of us, we try to maintain this public persona and kind of build a life that looks good and compare ourselves to our neighbors and then say, I must be good. But when you really think about it, and the Apostle Paul says, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's now not one that is good, no, not one. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. You look at that and you go, oh my gosh, like that's so harsh. Like what's going on, Paul? Calm down, man. But we do that because we're comparing ourselves to our neighbors or our own human standards. And then we're building things that have some goodness to them, but we're saying, this makes me right with God. This makes me good with God. And it's the Babel problem. Because when we can compare ourselves to God's law, we begin to see, oh man, okay, in comparison to that, guilty. Because you just think about, thou shall not lie. How many times do you guys think you've lied before? Would a thousand be conservative? Would 10,000 be accurate? 
for all of us, it's at least in the thousands, right? And then you think about how God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus says that sin begins in the heart. So he actually says, I tell you the truth, that if you even look at another person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Because it starts here. It's not like you wake up one morning and someone's next to you and you go, how did that happen? Oh my goodness, that was an accident. It starts in the heart, right? With lust and thoughts and thinking and devising plans until eventually it bears the fruit of an actual action called adultery. How many of us have done that? Looked at someone else with lust in our heart, right? That's probably in thousands too. And that's only two of the Ten Commandments. You think about God saying that we shouldn't use his name in vain. That's called blasphemy. It's, it's using God's name as a curse word. You think about that and you go, man, a lot of us have at least said it in our head, if not said it out loud, multiple times in our life. And so when you look at what God says is good, when you look at what he says is right, when he's taking us back to the garden before we devise our own ways and our own philosophies, and he's just going, this is a good path for you guys. This is what I want you to follow, and it'll be well with you. As you go, man, we are guilty thousands, if not millions of times over. And for God, who's good and holy and righteous, man, that creates such division in the relationship. It's just like a marriage that is constantly fractured. There's constant arguments. There's constant disagreement to where there's just no leadership and, and, and cohesion and agreement. And from God's perspective, he's saying, that's what's happened with mankind. And this tower, it's not going to do anything to bridge that gap. And your good works, it's not going to do anything either. There's a deeper fractioning of the human heart that needs to be fixed. And so the Lord looks down on this situation. And he cares about the fact that as mankind is kind of huddling together, that it is only going to create problem after problem after problem that causes them to get further and further from him. So what does he do? He confuses their language. He causes them to be completely confused in their minds. And now there's all these families of language groups. And it's really interesting if you look linguistically at what we see historically of how like languages develop. There's about 20 families of ling linguistic groups. And linguists don't fully understand that because they think that mankind should originate from one language. And here what we have is God confusing the people and giving them different languages. And then what you're going to have is our modern day languages that are evolutions from those original families. And so that's what he does. And he does that because he goes, man, I'm not going to let mankind be so built in their arrogance and hubris that they're just going to be able to go in this direction and feel that they are on top forever. So he spreads them out because of that pride-filled aim. But the second reason that, that God intervenes here at Babel is because people weren't fulfilling their purpose. They weren't multiplying and filling the earth. It says there, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
I mean, think about it. They're saying, we don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We want to stay here. Maybe we can appease God and he'll change his mind about his plan and let us be here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, remember, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So that's his purpose for his creation at this point. Subdue the earth, take it over, create cities and stuff. And then, once he kind of hits the reset button with Noah... Right after that, he comes to Noah and his family again, and he says it again. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So what he's doing is, is he's setting his people up. He's getting down on one knee, and he's going, guys, this is what I have you to do right now. Is, is have families and care for your families in a way where they know who I am, they know the path that's right, so that they can follow me and it will be well with them, and this earth will begin to proliferate with people who know their purpose and enjoy my creation and follow me. So he sets them up with their purpose. And because they're not doing that, he intervenes. So I take this picture of Babel, right? Is man's kind of prideful, doing their own thing, thinking it'll appease God. And then they're going, well, here's what God's purpose was, but maybe I could do something else that I want to do, and God will be happy with me. And I can just keep doing that. And he'll be appeased by what I've decided I want to do. And I take that into our modern day now. And I ask myself, do we do that? Do we sometimes kind of try to bless and baptize what God has not said is his purpose for us because it's simply just what we want to do? We don't really want to do what he's called us to do. And this has become my concern as a pastor. God, am I just trying to bless and baptize that which I want to do? Or am I looking at your word and laying down my bricks to build the tower and picking up the cross that you've called me to take upon my back to follow you. So think about this as we close. In the New Testament, God sets us up too. He makes it really clear what his plan and his purpose are, not only for his church, but individuals in his church. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus' last words before he goes up to be with the Father is he says, guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The term there is ethne, ethnic people groups, specific groups made up of cultures and languages. And he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. So he goes, go out there and spread the gospel amongst the people groups of this world. And then you look in Revelation chapter 7, and John gets this future picture of heaven, and he says, behold, I see a multitude in which none could number from every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. This future picture of, okay, God's people went out, they brought the gospel to all people groups, and now there's this full picture of redemption in heaven where every people group and every language is represented. And that's the fulfillment of God's plan for his kids. And he says it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, what's so incredible about this is that God sets us up too. 
He goes, your ultimate purpose is to be ambassadors for me, bringing the, the message of reconciliation, putting the broken pieces back together in Jesus Christ. And that's your primary purpose, your primary goal. Go and do that. Will you do everything else? Go and do that. So the question must be asked, is that what we're about? Is that what we're building as a church? Is that our ultimate focus? Because it's interesting, the emphasis changes in Scripture. No longer do you have Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 crying out for a physical baby, not to say that's not bad. But what you have now, as emphasized in the New Testament, is like Paul crying out for spiritual children. The people would hear the gospel and respond to it, and their hearts would be changed. And so there are Paul and Silas not crying out, oh, would you help our wives to have children, which isn't a bad prayer. But their ultimate focus is, oh, God, would your name be lifted up, and would people hear the gospel, and the, the jail cell that they're in breaks open, and the jailer comes out, and he gives his life to Christ, and they secretly go at night to his house, and all their family hears the gospel, and they give their life to Christ. And then Paul says in Philemon, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in prison. You see, he didn't have a conjugal visit. What happened here was that he had shared the gospel while he was in prison with Onesimus, and he came to faith. And this is Paul's focus of multiplication now. The ultimate focus of the New Testament isn't Hey, let's be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's not bad, but it becomes secondary. And what becomes primary is Paul's emphasis where he's even like, hey, married people, hey, you're married, awesome. Act like you're not married because the time is short. Go get the gospel out. He's not saying like divorce or anything like that. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying, Jesus has told us, go and make disciples of all people groups. And he showed us a future picture of that in heaven. That needs to be our focus and our emphasis. And if we try to baptize and bless anything else as primary in serving God in this world, we're creating our own Babel. And so we need to be really careful. I know I've gone slightly over in time, which is regular at our church. So welcome to Revive AV Christian Fellowship. Let me share a couple statistics with you to hammer this home, and then we'll close. So here the emphasis in the New Testament turns to multiplying disciples. That's the purpose of individuals in the church. That's the purpose of the church. But here's what's interesting. 80% of evangelical Christians believe they have the responsibility to share the gospel. But in the past six months, 61% of them have not done that with even one person. So God calls us to multiply disciples in all nations with the gospel. And of all those evangelicals, only 21% of them pray for another person's salvation every day. And of all those evangelicals, only 26% of them pray even a few times a week for other people to come to know Christ. That leaves over 50% of evangelical Christians, people who believe that this is the purpose God has called us to as individuals and as a church, over 50% who aren't praying at all 
on even a weekly basis, that people would come into a relationship with God. So here's what the Great Commission mandate really requires. And this is how we can honor God and make sure we're not creating a babel in our churches. We have to ask ourselves, Lord, how can I share what you have given me? How can I care for those around me? And how can I go to those away from me? Those who don't know the gospel yet, don't know Christ. How can I share with those around me, care for those near me, and go to those away from me? And when it comes to going, all of us have to care about it. Because we have the remedy that other people don't. And this is the primary calling of individuals and local churches. So are you praying? Are you seeking how you can give to the unreached people groups of this world that the gospel might go forth? And are you bringing that blank check before the Lord and going, God, how do I deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow you? God, blank check, man. I want to worship you and put you first like Abel did. Here's my blank check. Would you write it in? And would you give me the courage and boldness to put what you put first, first on my agenda? As the worship team comes forward, I'd encourage you to bow your hearts and your heads and let's pray. And let's ask the Lord, God, have I made a babble of my vocation, of my family, of good things, but have I just put stuff first above what your emphasis is in the New Testament? And church, if that's you, as, as your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, if that's you, God's not here to condemn you. Remember, his purpose in sharing his reasons in Scripture is to say, I love you, I care about you, I want you to be about what I'm about for your good and my glory. So know that he disciplines those whom he loves and he's just coming to you right now and he's asking, write that blank check. I have a better purpose for your life than what you make out of it. Still keep being a good dad or a good mom and plugging away at your vocation, but don't forget my call to the nations. Don't forget those without the gospel. And so put that blank check before him and go, God, how can I pray for the gospel to go forth in all nations? How can I go? Lord, if you're calling me short-term, mid-term, or long-term, and God, how can I give? What can I do with this one life to live? And God, we simply pray, would you take these prayers now and would you use them to mobilize your people in the Antelope Valley, in the state of California, in the nation, and all throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.